Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey there, folks. Oliver here. This week, we share a recent Triple M webinar where I interviewed Ryan Japetsky, founder of Jump. It's a bit of micromobility history. Talking about the Jump story, they all note that it was recorded before the mass destruction of the Jump bike fleet. Regardless, there's a heap of nuggets in there for people who want to understand where the industry has come from and where it's going. If you like this, you'll like Micromobility Membership, or Triple M. We do exclusive calls like this on a regular basis. Recently, we had Kara Swisher and Felix Salmon on. We've had the founders of Spin, the head of Segway's Business Development Unit, and as is mentioned on this call, Joe Krauss joined us last week from Lime to talk about the current state of the industry. RIP, good times. In addition, we do webinars on things like insurance and city data, and we have a Slack channel to talk with others in the industry who, like you, have an interest in building the future. Plus, you also get discounts on the Micromobility Conference, swag, and more, all for only 100 bucks a year. Check it out at micromobility.io. And now, here's Ryan. Hello, everybody, and happy Thursday. Welcome to another edition of the Triple M webinar. My name is Luke Hopping. I am joined today by our very good friend, Oliver Bruce, who hosts the Microability Podcast, and also a very special guest we're going to introduce to you in just one second, uh, Ryan Chepetsky. And uh, I think Ryan doesn't really need a big introduction here. This has been kind of one of the more uh, buzzed about and anticipated webinars we've announced so far. Um, I think it's safe to assume everyone on this call probably knows who he is, uh, but for a bit of a refresher, Ryan was the founder of Social Bicycles, which became Jump, which was acquired by Uber, which was then just a few weeks ago acquired by Lime. Uh, and he has been involved in the micromobility space uh, for upwards of 12 years. Um, and when we think about who some of the early players were who really got what dockless bike share was going to be early on, I think he's probably up there with among the, among the prescient few who saw this way of, way, a ways out more than uh, a lot of us. So we're really excited to have him here. Um, and I'm going to keep it short and simple today and just pass things right over to uh, Oliver uh, to get us going because he's going to lead this conversation. Oliver, can you hear me? Yep. I cool. Can. Awesome. Um, hey, Ryan. How you going, man? Hey, Oliver. <laughs> um, look, I'm, uh, I'm so stoked to be having this conversation. And thanks so much, Luke, for, for um, helping uh, get all of this set up. Um, and uh, look, Ryan, I think probably before we kick off, right, I'd love to just say a couple of things, which is that, uh, you know, as, as Luke said, um, the industry has had a very, very kind of crazy ride. And ever since uh, I first came across Jump and Social Bicycles, I've had a huge amount of respect for you. I love what you guys have done. And, and you, you clearly got bike share right from the very get-go um, and set tone. I think especially like around uh, operations and design that I, I, I think uh, the industry has finally come around to uh, after after having kind of made all the all those mistakes. Um, so I thought with this call, I really, I mean, I've got a set of questions and I know everybody else does as well, but um, I'd love to just hear your story. And, and really, I kind of want to get out of the way, to be honest. Um, so maybe we, maybe we just start off with that. I'd just love for you to like, tell us about like, who, who is Ryan, like where, where you come yeah. from and, and, then, uh, and, then, and then that story about, um, you know, where you, where, you, where, where you got to with Jump. Yeah, I'll, I'll do my best to summarize 10 years in, in a few minutes. <laughs> um, uh, so uh, I have a background in urban planning. I have a master's in urban planning uh, that I got in New York City. Um, and I was just always fascinated with how cities work. Um, that's what led me to studying, studying planning. Um, and as I was finishing up my transportation planning, my, my uh, urban planning degree, I saw uh, the trend of bike share starting to take off in Europe. So mostly, you know, 2007, the Lieb launched. And it was the first time there was really large scale, city scale bike share, um, 20,000 bikes, which was sort of unheard of at the time. Um, and it instantly became this new form of, of transportation. Um, you know, bike share had been around a little before that, but it was sort of like a, an advertising gimmick. 
where, where outdoor advertising companies like JC Decoe or Clear Channel um, would, would do this free bike share program uh, in order to get these outdoor billboards and these other concessions. So that was the first iteration. Uh, but I think, you know, with, with the 20,000 bike project in Paris, it really showed the potential of it uh, beyond just being kind of a, a marketing gimmick. Um, and I was fascinated. Um, so the, the, aha, uh, the aha moment I had was in the fall of 2008. Um, and it was, hey, the, the bike share system in Paris is amazing, but it requires these big bulky docking station, stations that are connected together uh, and controlled by a central kiosk. And so the idea I had is, can you take the technology out of the docking point and put it on the bike, have each bike with an integrated uh, locking system and mobile connection, uh, and then the user being able to find and book it with a mobile phone. Um, and that seems kind of uh, obvious now, that's the way that, that many of these things work now. But in 2008, you know, the iPhone had only been out for about a year. Uh, the, the idea of, of IoT and putting connectivity onto objects was still very new. Uh, I remember the first modem that we sourced was like $125 just for the modem. Uh, the, big, oh, the, <laughs> the, the, the big wireless carriers, carriers didn't even have data plans optimized for this. It was just very, very early. Um, but I was naive. Uh, you know, I, I didn't have a technical background, which was, was probably good because if I had, I probably wouldn't have attempted the project. Um, and, and I just said, okay, well, can, is this technically feasible? Is it possible? Um, and so I, I spent 2009 kind of drawing up some patent applications and re refining the system design um, and kind of had a big moment in 2010 where, um, you know, I quit my job at the New York City Department of Transportation um, where I was doing uh, bike, bike lanes and bike racks and building city infrastructure. Uh, I made the jump to quit that stable uh, government job um, and, and try to actually build the system. Um, those early years were also fun because, uh, you know, I just talked to anybody and everybody I could about it and, and I tried to figure out how I was going to build this thing. Uh, and so I talked to kind of a large product design studio and then say it would take, you know, two years and cost $2 million. And then I talked to kind of a medium sized one, it'd be like half a million dollars in a year. And then yeah. finally, uh, you know, I met uh, a couple of guys working out of a garage in Greenpoint and they said, it's going to be $50,000 and take six months. You're my guys. Uh, you're my guys, exactly. <laughs> um, and, and the answer is everybody was right. Uh, to do it properly took multiple years and multiple millions of dollars. But yeah. in those early, earliest phases, you just want to move the football forward. You just want to eke out yardage and, and get some critical mass of uh, uh, behind the concept. Um, so a big pivot point uh, came at the end of 2010 and early 2011. Uh, that first couple of years of development was really focused on a lockbox that would work with any bicycle. So you would just like get a fleet of a hodgepodge fleet of bikes and you would tack on this smart lock uh, and then you'd have a, a kind of a, a low cost bike share network. Um, and so even before, like we, we, we spent hundred couple hundred thousand dollars, which was a lot of money for us at the time. In fact, mm. uh, you know, basically my, my mom mortgaged their house to be able to put that money into the business. Um, mm. And of all the money I spent over the years building the company, I, I probably spent that money the worst <laughs> because I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Um, so, just out of curiosity, was the idea with the lockbox was because I remember um, trying to get car like a car share, like a zip car, mm -hmm. way back in the day. Was that sort of an idea stolen from that? From that? Because um, that was how they used to do it, right? Like with the with the the original, oh, maybe it wasn't Zipcar, but certainly some of the original car shares I saw had a, like IoT enabled lock boxes where you'd un unlock the key. Um, so uh, it's funny, uh, Justin Wiley and my colleagues uh, around the same time uh, actually took one of those real estate key boxes and put like yeah. literal, literal keys inside of it and would use that to unlock um, locks. Um, we were a little more advanced than that. We, we, were, we were actually doing IoT. We were actually embedding the cell module in it. And we had an electromechanical lock. So like it was a custom designed lock and something would fire and it would, it would unlock. Um, so it was, it was a little less kind of uh, cobbled together than that. We actually were, were making product. Um, but we hit this big pivot point where we, we spent a couple hundred thousand building these prototypes. And then we got to the fall of 2010 and, and basically decided not to launch them. Um, because we realized one to, to scale up along that path was going to have, it was going to be kind of expensive in, in the, in the product, uh, the product design that we come up with, uh, and it, and it probably wasn't going to work terribly well. Um, and then two, we realized that, Hey, you can't just take a regular fleet of bicycles and expect to launch and operate an industrial fleet. You needed to have a custom designed bicycle. 
So uh, at the end of 20, 2010, early 2011, that's when I met Nick Foley, um, who, who really became just like core to the jump story and, 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 and to this day to the industry uh, of driving it forward. Um, and so I actually met him at a, at a, at a bike shop on the west side uh, of New York. It was a bike shop that carried like European commuter bikes. Um, so it wasn't like a, a, a sport bike. It was really a commuter focused uh, cycling shop. And he was doing a bunch of custom kind of fabrication projects for, for the owner of that. Um, and I said, hey, could, could you actually make uh, a custom bike for bike sharing? And he was just out of Pratt uh, at the time. Uh, and he's like, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, so, so, you know, he, he went and kind of just used, used all the, the commuter bikes that, that he had around him as kind of a reference point. Um, kind of came up with this this initial social bicycles uh, bike aesthetic, um, which we really iterated on a little bit over the years, but became kind of the core ride experience uh, that really carried forward through Jump. Um, and so we did that design in, in early 2011, and we ended up. I remember we ended up ordering the first 60 bikes even before we we saw a sample. So it was another just like oh we had to hit some arbitrary deadline that was not even really a real deadline, and we just kind of like raced to to hit that. And, and meanwhile, it's a kid right out of college, and we're we're kind of betting the betting the farm on it. Um, so we made that big pivot uh, on okay, now we're now we're not just doing the locking system; we're integrating uh, that into our own custom vehicles. Um, and then the software was a huge part of it too. So there's a, a team in, in Krakow, Poland, that we started working with in 2011 um, that that really built the fleet operations software and the user experience. Um, so 2011 was like really putting. Uh, really putting the foundations of what the next eight years were going to be. Um, and meanwhile, you know, because in 2010, 2011, we actually got a lot of press pretty early on. Like I, I literally sent like a three sentence email to Tektronch, Treehugger and Engadget saying, Hey, I'm, I'm this guy in New York and I'm making this low cost bike share system. And like all of them picked up the story and then it kind of went, you know, mini viral. Um, and so we were on a, like most major tech publications over a one or two week period. Um, and so what that did is create a ton of inbound leads. So we, we always had inbound in terms of growing the business of people that wanted to, to like get this low cost bike share system. Uh, and it's worth pausing here that the, the initial business model to make all this work was that we were going to sell the bikes and locking systems. So we're going to sell the vehicles and then we're going to charge SaaS fees uh, to, to provide the fleet management software. Um, and then users would have one account that can work across all these different networks. Um, so we kind of controlled a bit of the user experience and then we had the fleet operations software. It was, a, it was a bundle that we packaged up and sold the cities. And so 2012 to 2015, that was the early years of getting uh, product market fit with the cities, with, with the, the folks that were coming up with projects. So when I talk about my early, early project list, it's like, how did you end up in all these random places? Um, it wasn't like we came up list with like, these are the top 50 cities that we want to be in. Uh, yeah. It was it was really like okay this city has a grant and they're going to release an RFP um, and then in the early years the RFPs were like written for the dock based system so that it would, the RFP would say must have a docking station and and an X Y Z and it would just describe the competitor so we were like twisting and just uh, twisting our RFP responses to kind of make it fit the bill then later we got better at actually influencing the RFP process and explaining our offering before um, before an RFP would come out and say hey. You know, there is another option that you should be considering in your RFP. Um, and so 2012 to 2015, that's when we had our, our first our first three launches were uh, San Francisco at the airport, uh, Buffalo, New York with Buffalo, what was then Buffalo Car Share, um, yeah. and uh, Sun Valley, uh, Haley, Idaho, um, which is a, a super small town, kind of a ski Yeah, town. wow, um, yeah. And, and, and like literally it was like three guys. So we were like, like flying there and building up the fleet ourselves. Um, you know, we were, we were four guys. It was, it was me, Nick, Justin, and Mark by, in, in 2012. Um, so, so, so we get those first customers and we kind of get year over year growth and, you know, get into the millions of revenue actually pretty quickly in 2015 um, and get basically every year, every, you know, you win small projects that get you up a notch to, to get bigger projects and you just kind of worked your way up. Um, we got Hamilton, Ontario, which was, was a marquee or bigger project for us. It got to be, I think, 750 bikes. Uh, and at, and the fall of 2015 was Santa Monica, which is a, a still a great city. Um, 
And so we kind of like were proving out this, this product, getting cities to say, okay, dockless, uh, we, we didn't really call it dockless, we called it smart bike. You know, smart bike systems uh, were, were good. It, you know, you don't need to have a dock-based system. You can get more bang for your buck. Uh, so we're just shifting the industry away from, from one, one technology model to another technology model. And 2016, we really had it kind of all, we had that kind of figured out. Uh, we got to the point where we hit about 10 million in revenue and break even. Uh, on this equipment sales and, and SaaS business. Uh, we launched tons of projects in a very short period of time. So we, we figured out the machine for our supply chain and, and, and launch teams kind of getting on the ground. Um, and we launched uh, what was kind of our, uh, you know, our, our, our most prominent project at the time, uh, Portland, Oregon, uh, where we had sponsorship by Nike, like a top tier brand, putting their brand onto our vehicles. Um, and it was operated by, by Motivate, which was the large, share, the large operator that did New York um, and Chicago and SF and all these other big cities. So we, we kind of figured it all out. Um, and then we basically had to throw all that away uh, because the industry dynamic changed so much. You know, the, <laughs> so, so just when we thought we had it figured out, that's the same time that Mobike and Ofo started scaling up. So... I, in, in spring of 2016, I was at uh, a trade show, a bike trade show in Shanghai, and I, thought, I saw the first few thousand mobikes on the street. Uh, and I thought, you know, I'd seen so many bike share companies come and go. I thought, oh, isn't that quaint? Like, that'll, that'll probably be out of business uh, soon. Um, but then, you know, they did the first few thousand in Shanghai, and that became 10,000, that became 100,000, then that became millions of bikes across uh, all, of, all of China. Um, uh, between Mobike and Ofo, I think it was like 5 million bikes uh, each uh, at one point around the world. Um, and then it started spilling over in 2017 uh, into the U.S. market. So the, the we, we were already trying to adjust to this. By the end of 2016, we started getting more inbound interest from VCs. They're like, something's happening in this space. Like, maybe we should take a look. Who are the players to talk to? Um, and, and then, so in 2017, it, it became pretty clear that we had to radically change what we were doing. Um, and the, the kind of wake up call was we lost 25% of our projected 2017 revenue. We lost 4 million in, in 2017 revenue in about a two week period where we had uh, contracts in California that were on the finish line, just needed to be signed. And then competitors came in and said, well, why would you ever buy a bike share system? We'll give you a much bigger one and we'll launch in two weeks. Why would you, why would you buy a bike share system? Um, right. So that was that was basically like the moment where we're like, okay, we have to go all in on a new strategy. This isn't just uh, a, a small change to the industry, at least for the next two, three year period. This is sort of an existential threat to what we were doing um, because we needed, we were still at a stage where we needed those annual equipment sales. And if we didn't have those equipment sales coming in, uh, we couldn't have supported our headcount and then we would have just died. Um, so 2017 was the year where we made five major pivots any one of which would be a big thing for a company to do in a year. And we had to do all five and we had to do all five perfectly or else we would have died. Um, and so the, the five pivots were first, uh, we vertically integrated and we went from selling bikes and SaaS to owning and operating our own fleets. Um, we were kind of inching toward that transition anyway, but we, we, we had to double down on it. We'd, we'd done a, we'd operated only very small fleet. We said, no, we're going to start, we're going to actively start turning down equipment sales contracts. And we're only going to focus on stuff that we're owning and operating where you come with a priority list of cities and we're gonna figure out how to enter those markets. Um, two, uh, we, we did the rebrand. So we were social bicycles up to that point, which was kind of fine for B2B and government sales, uh, but it sounds more like a communist plot than it does a, a sexy tech uh, <laughs> startup. Um, yep. <laughs> so you got, so we you, got caught, you got trapped in the sort of the four, the four letter um, micromobility company name though. Uh, yeah, we, we did, but, but I think it was, it was a name that I'd had in the back of my head for probably a couple of years. Um, and when we did the branding exercise in 2017, uh, we, <clears throat> you know, we did explore some other names and other concepts and a lot of that work led into the, to the brand collateral. Um, but ultimately, you know, we thought it worked really well. Um, and, and so, yeah, we, we did the rebrand in a very short amount of time. Uh, we did it with uh, the guy that we'd worked with on the Nike bikes the year prior. Um, so yeah. somebody that had worked with Brand, Brand Jordan and Nike, and, and it was just an amazing creative process over about two or three months. So vertically integrated, rebranded. Three, we introduced the e-bike. So we had been working some massive new platform launch at the same time. 
Uh, we've been working on e-bike uh, for about two years at that point um, and just got to the point where we had something that was deployable. Uh, we ordered the first 100 bikes basically on spec uh, uh, for launch in San Francisco um, and, and, and kind of put those orders in and, and realized that we still had to figure out a whole bunch of stuff before we could, uh, could launch along the way, but we had a time pressure to get this product out in the market. Um, four, uh, we did a strategic partnership with Uber. Uber started getting into the space and they're like, okay, we'll do an integration deal to put you in the app. Um, we did that. One of the main things we got that was for, was for industry credibility. Um, you know, we had been perceived as more of these like old, you know, the old, the old guard for the business um, versus the new guard. My background is urban planning. I worked for the city. I don't, I didn't go to Stanford uh, or, you know, work for Facebook. So I didn't necessarily fit the, the pattern matching out there. Um, uh, but this kind of was an endorsement that, that allowed uh, fundraising to be a bit easier. Um, and so that was the, the fifth major move is that after, you know, a year and a half of out there trying to fundraise in this, in this environment, uh, we finally got a series A done with Menlo's lead that would give us enough to prove out our next milestones. And in the backdrop, while we're doing all these major moves, uh, we're trying to get a permit to launch in San Francisco. So in early, uh, <clears throat> early 2017, um, you know, there, there's a blue go-go that tried to launch in San Francisco caused a bit of a, a, a drama there. They said, no, no, you can't launch in San Francisco unless you have a permit. And, and, and then that, of course, begs the question, well, well what's a permit look like, right? So they spent uh, a, lot, a lot of time trying to like, figure out what the heck uh, a, a permit looks like. And we're kind of working in the background. We'd done like a private beta launch that wasn't public that kind of allowed us to operate in a bit of an um, <clears throat> undefined space. Uh, it was actually a project that was a, in partnership with UC Berkeley. Uh, and SFMTA. So, so we actually had, you know, we had cause to be on the ground there in San Francisco while they're figuring out this permitting situ situation. Um, and so, so we get to end of 2017, um, starting early 2018, we had raised and spent most of that money, the, the, the money we raised in the fall to, to do our first launch. We, we spent almost all of that in just a couple of months because we had to get the equipment there. Um, we'd done all these major pivots and moves but nothing had, had really landed yet. Like we, had, we didn't actually launch to show consumer traction. Uh, and so early 2018, I, I, I go to my wife, I say, you know, th there's a good chance this all goes up in flames in the next few weeks unless, unless uh, uh, something changes here. Uh, if it does, will you just uh, move with me down to, to Argentina? I think I need to take some time off. <laughs> um, and she said, okay, so I, I, I got a good wife. Um, uh, but then, of course, we, we got the San Francisco permit in mid-January. We, we launched in mid-January, um, and it just took off right away. So there was extreme product market fit. The stuff that everybody had been looking for, um, you know, the, the extremely high trips per bike per day, uh, really people talking about it in San Francisco become part of the social scene there. Um, you know, we had very prominent um, uh, CEOs of tech companies using it, um, opening up doors, making intros to top VCs to do the next round. Uh, and then at this point, you know, this is early 2018. This is when globally bike share uh, in micro mobility and, and scooter sharing started to get a bunch of heat. Um, and so, so we just, we, at, we had this early 2018 from going from, you know, never having more than a few months of runway, just barely getting through a tough 2017 to having multiple acquisition offers and, and fundraises from, you know, the, the, literally like the best you could imagine, the best, the best most respected VCs and partners. Um, and so we had a tough choice um, and, and we ultimately ended up uh, choosing to be acquired. Uh, it did so primarily uh, to be part of a multimodal platform and to be able to take this vision around the world to operate at scale and, and um, make an impact globally much faster. Um, we did that, you know, it spent a, about a year and a half there integrating the company um, and we launched, uh, we launched Latin America, we launched uh, Australia, New Zealand, uh, we launched uh, really, really successfully throughout Europe. Um, and, and we got to you know, get hundreds of thousands, if not, new millions, if not millions of people to try uh, electric bikes for the first time. Um, and so that's, that's the story. Uh, in the end of last year, um, I felt like I had accomplished the things that I wanted to from, from that process. Um, and I left at the end of the year and, and I'm currently, uh, in Puerto Rico, 
uh, taking a bit of time off and trying to figure out uh, what's next. So that's that's ten years and probably ten minutes. <laughs> Dude, no, that's awesome. Thank you uh, for for setting the scene. Um, this oh, it's uh, it, it's amazing hearing that story come from you, just because there's so many so many touch points. A lot. I remember I remember those TechCrunch articles from like 2011, <laughs> and and seeing and being like, oh, you know, that's that's a really cool design. Blah blah blah. Um, so look, I, I I know that there's um there's going to be a heap of questions coming through anyway. Like I, I I kind of there's a bunch that I want to hit uh, while we do it. I do also kind of probably the biggest one that we want, may want to get out of the way is just uh you know uh, jumps just being sold to Lime. Um, you know, uh, obviously that's that, that's a big that's a big move. I'd love. It, it, I know you haven't been with the company for 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 you know what what it's almost six months now, but I, I know that people will will be curious to to hear your your thoughts on it. Um, yeah, I I think um, yeah I I wasn't around for any of the deliberations or discussions that that were happening that led to that. I think that uh, coronavirus has has had a huge impact on a lot of industries and a lot of businesses and a lot of tough choices are, are being made right now. Um, I, I'm hopeful that, that some part of, of what we built um, will carry forward uh, through Lime, uh, that they'll be able to make some, some use of, of the IP that was developed, the markets that were captured and developed. Um, and uh, on another point, I'm very sad because a, a good number of, of the team that we built uh, which I, I believe is is the is the best out there, particularly on the product side. Um, you know, uh, a, a lot of them are going to be are, are are without work. Uh, a lot of them got laid off in this process, and so I, I hope that one line carries forward some amount of knowledge and some amount of the IP and, and brings it to market. And then I hope that the the folks that that got let go still have so much passion for the space and still um, have so much to contribute. Uh, and I think they're going to go out with a lot of energy. And so I hope, I hope that uh, a lot of people in, in the broader space pick up these people, get on LinkedIn, contact them, talk to them, and realize the impact that they can make. Um, and, and that, you know, you just have this concentration of talent now diffused through, through more companies. And so, you know, maybe this is something that, you know, in, in this unfortunate, unfortunate situation that the industry gets deeper and stronger and broader, um, as a result. Yeah. Um, Horace, uh, our, our co-founder and, and the co-host for the podcast, uh, oftentimes talks about the, that process of creative destruction that is sort of out of, out of these, you know, unfortunate, mm -hmm. um, moments we end up with, 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 uh, the, the future generations of, of products. And, and it's, it's funny. Um, so Luke, uh, when I, when, when we were preparing for this call, he said, when Corey, Ryan, when Corey Weinberg writes the definitive, uh, micro mobility boom and bust story, um, the header image will be a jump bike. And um, I'm hoping, I mean, we, we've, we've talked a lot about the sort of like the, I would love to be able to buy a jump bike. I thought they were the most beautifully designed products and yet they're not available in that sort of channel. And hopefully, you know, yeah. those design talents actually go through and um, something like that ends up uh, in, in, in person um, in a kind of consumer product. Um, I, there's a bunch of there's a bunch of things along the way um, of of your story that I wanted to kind of jump into. Um, one is design, and two is fundraising, and 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 three is the sort of um, the behind the scenes story. If there's anything that's um, if you were to kind of pick it out, let's start there. So what you know, if you were to pick it out, what were the really big highlights um, for you in that in that in that story, right from like the get go through to um, uh, when you when you left? Yeah, I think. You know, getting getting your first first teammates on board, and uh, you know, so so getting Nick getting Nick to believe in this and willing to put his life into it, and then having Justin join and do the same, and, and Mark getting these early people on board is is super special and, and, and creates this bond and, and this culture that that, that then grows. Um, and one of the early memories that was kind of a, a, a tipping point for us. Um, we went and uh, did the New York Tech Meetup, which is a big event in New York where they get, you know, New York-based companies on stage that present a piece of technology. It's not a fundraising event, specifically not. You're not supposed to do like a pitch deck. You're supposed to do a product demonstration. Um, and so I got on that stage, and at that point, we, um, we had spent, you know, again, a couple hundred K of, of my, my mom's money, and I think, my, you know, my, my wife, who's, who's my girlfriend at the time, her money, 
uh, we were running out of cash. We had like 40 bikes that were literally on a boat on the water from China that we couldn't pay for. Um, and my fundraising was just not working. (laughs) Uh, but I got on this stage and I did this, this New York tech meetup. Um, and, and that led to, uh, David Rose from New York angels, seeing the presentation, emailing me immediately after, uh, we went and pitched them, um, that week. And really it was kind of a make or break. If, if, if he hadn't committed, it probably would have, you know, we we were going to be out of cash. Um, and after hearing no, after every single pitch for a very long time, uh, we just finished the meeting and he's just like, I love it and I want to do it. <laughs> and it was like, whoa, okay, we're, we're, we're in business here. Um, so that was, that was a key. That was like, okay, now we have a, we have a, we have a first investor. We have a product demonstration. I have an early team. Uh, 2016 and the, and launch week of Portland, I think for, for a lot of the, the, the jump OGs, uh, and Sobe OGs, that's a, a key week. We were simultaneously launching like we were launching a couple of systems. We launched Cleveland and Portland and like one or two other systems that same week. I was also on the BD trail and we won uh, Sacramento and New Orleans. I traveled to Sacramento and New Orleans for like closing pitches that same week. Yep. Uh, wow. And then we all, then we all went back to Portland um, and, and, and it was just like a hail Mary to get that thing off in time, including like, like there's uh, truck drivers, like we, we were just barely, like literally still shipping the stuff to the job site and, and, and going out on trucks and installing the stations and stuff. Um, and, and because it was so tight, we, we were like dealing with a trucking company that was behaving unethically that said, okay, yeah, we'll do it in a day. But then they're taking like multiple days, we'll try to get them on the phone. Turns out one of them spoke Polish and we had a Polish guy there and another one spoke Spanish. And we had a, somebody spoke Spanish there. So we're like <laughs> navigating all this craziness just to get it delivered. And then you know, going out in teams, you know, the same, like, you know, designers and engineers um, and, and BD folks out there wrenching and, and putting the stations together and getting it off the ground. Um, so getting that thing launched uh, and all the other things that we accomplished in that week was, was just tremendous. Um, and then I think the, the SF, uh, when we first launched the, the private beta in, in summer of 2017, summer of yeah, 2017 in San Francisco, yeah. Um, that was a very tough moment. It was a tough decision. We built our reputation on really strong, clear partnerships with cities. Um, and we felt we had that there. We felt we had, um, you know, we had UC Berkeley and SFMTA that knew about the project. And then we were, we were basically told that we shouldn't launch after we put all this work and bet the company on it. And we had to make a very tough decision to kind of launch in this, in this private way. Um, it was a kind of, kind of a company defining decision. Um, and, and it kind of led and opened up to, to everything else um, that followed. Um, so those are, those are three, three kind of very big moments that um, I think led to, to the good outcomes we had. And there's so many, you know, little memories along the way. Um, you know, I think the, <clears throat> you, you're, you're asking kind of like, what are some of the, the behind the heat scenes and, and you know, stuff and the, the highlights that you might not know about. I think the meta thing is that, we just always kind of looked bigger and more professional externally than, than we ever felt that we were. Um, it was just way more of a shit show than, than what, uh, than what it may have appeared. Um, but I, I went from thinking like that was like, that was, that was actually the beauty of it. That was the strength. It was being resource constrained that forced us to make, uh, incredibly tough decisions and have laser focus. And it also created this crazy bond between people where, you know, you're cramming into crappy hotels or you're cramming into Airbnbs. You're out there, everybody's doing the physical labor to get something going together. Um, you know, I, I was sort of notoriously watching every dollar and being extremely frugal because we, we literally didn't have any. So I was, I was like personal travel agent to the team trying to save that extra $50 on flights or, uh, yeah, crash myself crashing on the floor under like a tablecloth, uh, for, uh, to, to, to save on a hotel night. Um, but it created this great bond and this great culture, um, these great memories. And, and when, when we, people were reminiscing the last two weeks, um, as, as people were being let go, people had a lot of fond memories about these times. Um, and so I guess if you're, if you're starting something nascent now and you're saying, oh, how am I going to compete with the, these bigger companies? You know, we had to compete against track and, and these big outdoor advertising companies or, or companies with these big city contracts. Um, but 
you know, think about how, how the being resource constrained is actually something that can create a strong consult culture and create much faster decision making. Like you just, you just get to the answer much, much faster. Um, so, so yeah, it's, when I, when I reflect on the 10 years, it was, you know, just how much it's incredible in those early years, how much so few people were able to accomplish. Uh, yeah. when we, when we delivered something, uh, you know, we'll talk about design in a minute, but when we deliver something like the, the, the first jump bike, it felt like a very polished product from a much bigger team. Yeah. Um, speaking of resource constraint, um, the, the, you know, you, you, you talked about that period, uh, 2016 through into 2017. Well, it was more like almost 2017, I think was really when the, the kind of the crazy stuff happened when all the, yeah. the scooters started to come out. Talk me through that period when, you know, like, what was the moment that it dropped that all of a sudden, like, all bets were off and, and, and you know, the fundraising, like, oh, crap, like, we're going to have to do this differently. And then what would that was like? Because you guys were very different, right? Like, everybody was coming along doing scooters or whatever, and, and you were coming along with, like, a long history. You actually kind of knew what you were doing vaguely. Uh, yeah. more so than others. It was, it was very humbling where uh, the, the, at that point, eight years of history we had in the space uh, and, the, and the existing business we had built, it was not actually seen as like an advantage. It was, it was, it was seen as a disadvantage. Um, it was literally negative. We got negative valuation for having had that experience and having had that business. We, we were able to raise for less than somebody with just a PowerPoint and a pedigree. Um, and that was very, very humbling and very, very frustrating um, to be out and in, in that position. Um, and so 2016, you know, basically in 2015, I kind of gave up on, on raising funding. And I said, okay, I just got to make this business work. And so we hunker, hunkered down and tried to win as many contracts as possible and execute on it because I didn't feel like I could go back to the well. Like every time I tried to, to go, go fundraise, it was unsuccessful. And then our existing investors had to, had to kind of bail us out at, at often not ideal valuations. Um, and so, you know, I said, okay, well, let's just focus and build a business. And we did that in 2016. It was an incredible feeling to get to break even. Um, but then you notice things changing in 2016 as Mobike and Ofo started scaling and you just see these fundraising rounds that they would get. And I remember in the fall of 2016, they, they started raising in the hundreds of millions. And it's like, oh shit. Uh, then, it, then it was like, all right, am I going to be in one of the first industries, maybe the first industry that gets disrupted and dominated by a, a Chinese-based company? Like you have, you have maybe DJI, um, or you, you, I mean, DJI is winning that space. Um, but, but generally you don't have large consumer, uh, products and brands being dominated out of China. Um, and I'm like, okay, or, or did I, did I do this for eight years just to, just to then die from extremely well-funded, uh, Chinese, uh, companies, um, which I, you know, I think is going to, is going to be happening more and more over the next decade. Um, yeah. So uh, those funding rounds started getting uh, Western investors interested. Um, so I started getting inbound calls that fall. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, Spin and Lime raised around the same period of time in Q1 yeah. of 2017. Uh, so, so, so saw those fundraises. And again, it was I, a I heard a story and I'll just, I want to put it to you, which is that, uh, Toby had seen uh, your pitch deck. Is it, can you give uh, any, can you give yeah. me a to that story? <laughs> uh, I'll just say, so we were out fundraising a lot in 2017. Um, and uh, one of the, one of the VCs we talked to was uh, Foson Capital, which was a Chinese based VC and Toby, and I believe Brad were both partners at that fund. Uh, and I did meet with, I did meet with Toby um, at that time. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know how all the timing worked out. Everybody does know that in you know, January that they, they were out and they'd had the company and they, were, they did the, the funding from uh, Andreessen. Um, but, but yeah, I think it was just indicative of the time of, of it being, you know, a bit of a, it, it sparked a bit of a gold rush where people said, okay, now this is happening in China. How do we replicate it here? Do we, mm. who, who are the U.S. players? Do we invest in them? You spin out new businesses. So, so yeah, so I think he, he and, and Brad were working as VCs at the time. I think that's, that's kind of how they, they legged into the space. Um, but yeah, I think it was, it was weird just having been around for that long and not being, well, first we're not able to raise because 
you know, I guess our business model is we were selling bicycles to government, which yes. it's, it's hardware and government sales, which is kind of like a perfect storm of not, <laughs> oh, not good. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly. um, so, and then, and, and plus bicycles, people were like, you know, get a real mode of transportation. Can't, can't you just yeah. book, a, book a car? Um, and so, so for, you know, the first eight years we couldn't because there wasn't a VC interest at all. And then when there was VC interest, then we weren't able to raise because we had this pedigree and this history and this existing business that we, you know, would be somewhat of a barrier to, to accomplishing the, the pivot. Um, so, so yeah, 20, so 2017, then I was really on the fundraising circuit and, and spent, you know, time up and down Sand Hill road and, and just trying to, trying to get a round done. And I could get the meetings. Like we had the story that there's energy in the space. Uh, and starting in about May of 2017, we had the product. We had a jump bike that, you know, from a ride experience is not much different than the stuff that, that's, that's still in the street now in May of 2017. And I, I would have VCs ride that bike. Um, and most of them just, you know, they then say, well, well, well what's, what's your customer acquisition costs and what's your, um, you know, what, what are your operating economics and stuff? I'm like, well, I don't have that. I, I have the product. We're going to, we're going to get this. Uh, mm -hmm. But it was really, really hard to get somebody to take that bite uh, to, to fund the first fleet. Um, you know, this, despite everything that we built and also frustrating where, you know, that product, that bike was the result of, you know, seven, eight plus years of iterative development. Um, and, and other people in the space would say, oh, well, e-bike, sure, we could do an e-bike if we want. We'll have an e-bike in three months. And I'm like, well, no, like, maybe you can have something, but like <laughs> the, the, the level of execution that's here is, is, is multiple years of development. Um, so, so, so ultimately, as, as I said, we got the funding done in the fall of 2017, but it was, it was very, very difficult um, even still. And I, I wouldn't say we, we really – we really had the buzz and, and the, the product market fit and, and the VC market fit um, until January 2018 when we actually got it on the street in a big city and had huge, huge ridership numbers. Um, so, so yeah, the, the funding environment, that, that, was, that was the basic thing is that if for those period of years, our, our bread and butter was selling bikes to, to cities and charging SaaS, if no city is going to be able to buy bikes during that time, we had yeah. to figure out a way to crack the other model. Um, now, it's interesting. A lot of the cities uh, were, that were afraid of the private model were afraid because, well, what happens if you launch and then you shut down a program? Um, and that's, that's now happened in a number of places. Um, totally. And so some yeah. of those fears were, were validated. But the, with the way the market was at the time, it was clear for that, you know, until this cycle ran through, uh, there was no other way for us to, to stay in business. Yeah. Oh, I've got so many more questions there, but I, I do want to move on because the uh, I, we've got a couple of questions coming in on the on the chat, um, and uh, and if anybody else has got any others, just uh, feel free to jump them in, uh, jump them in there. But um, the the kind of final question that I'll I'll I'll, I'll leave from from my side is design. So I mean, I rem and, and as I mentioned, you know, I, I I do think that the the jump bike design is in particular like just stunning it was it was it was a kind of a classic design and i do think that it will be one of those ones that we look back on and say um you know that was that was the period at which we kind of we cracked it we we worked out what one of these beautiful designs could look like um how did you th how important and material did you think design was i mean it, it it became really clear that like it was a big deal but um, how did that kind of influence how you built the company, especially kind of relative to your peers who might not have had such a focus on, on, yeah. on, uh, on those designs? Yeah, I think it was, it was uh, important to me um, from the very, very beginning. Like I, I, I valued it and, and have, have kind of a passion for it, um, but it, didn't, it became core and it became you know, like, yeah, yeah, a core a core value when Nick joined the team in 2011, and he brings not just you know, I, I have the desire for good design and understand a little bit of the process, but he has he has incredible design uh, capabilities, sensibilities, and the ability to execute and to mobilize a team uh, around uh, around this. So so he um, you know he really crystallized all that, and then I think the pinnacle of of expression of our our design values was in 2017. When we did, you know, we launched the e-bike 
and we paired it with amazing graphic design and branding. Um, yeah. and, and so Nick, um, like he, the, the graphic design and branding, he, he's something he cared about, but it wasn't, so, it wasn't his domain expertise. So to like combine his, his level of design and engineering excellence with, um, with a great brand that we, we partnered with uh, Chris Partolo, um, who, who we'd worked with on the Nike bikes. We could tie that together so that the, the, the full package just felt very complete. Um, and when those hit the, when those bikes hit the street, um, you know, it, it, it felt like, you know, it felt like multiple years and large teams had gone into it. Um, and I think it, I think it actually just comes down to, to simply just giving a shit, you know, just caring more than other people uh, about the details. Um, and then uh, on the product side, you know, that, that's realizing that uh, getting design right means your ops costs go down, right? So if you're designing for durability, um, you know, you're, you're actually improving the life cycle and improving the economics. Uh, it improves the consumer experience, all the little touch points, the grips, you don't want the grips to get sticky, the brake levers, what's the feel of the brake levers, the saddle, is it a comfortable saddle? What's the riding geometry like? All those little touch points. If you just care more and you just care about getting all those details right, people don't, people can't point to one thing, but the whole thing comes together and, 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 and it's better. Um, and, you know, on the brand side, you know, I remember in uh, Chris Partlow in 20, 2016 when we were working on the, uh, the Nike bikes, um, he was on the floor of the, of the factory in China comparing like two different oranges. I couldn't, people can't even tell the difference between these two oranges, but no, no, it's this orange, you want this orange. And so just that, that attention to detail and, and, and wanting it more than everybody else. I think, I think there's like most, if you just care more than, you know, it's amazing what that can, can yield in terms of uh, coming up with a better product. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I um, people can, Horace often talks about how like with an iPhone, right. That you can, you can tell that someone cared and that, yeah. and that it's very intangible, but um, I certainly felt that when I first tried out the, the jump bikes, um, um, Alex Vickers has a question here, which is where do you think the industry is going from here, Ryan? This question that I have is also, this is great. Yeah. Um, every company is talking about subsidy. And do you think that that's the right answer for the space? Yeah, I, I, I'd like to say that f we're still in the early days of the industry. So, so seeing changes in product and changes in business model um, is, is natural. Um, seeing significant scale back and then a, a, a pause or a, or a scale down until you figure things out is normal. Um, I, but I think overall, like we, we should be very happy about where we are versus just 10 years ago. Um, 10 years ago, it was just outdoor advertising companies or sponsorship or government grants as like the only model out there. Um, it's just a much deeper ecosystem now. There's more companies involved and there's more, more funding sources. There still is a desire for private capital to come in. Um, and there's going to need to be more innovation on, on both product and business model, but there's just a, a, a bigger base of companies that are doing that. In terms of subsidy, I, th I think it's part of the equation, but I, I don't think it should go back to just exclusive government government contracts, single player contracts. Um, I think we need to, we got to remember, remember that as an input. Um, but, but think about, we can't just ignore the, what's happened over the last two or three years either. We need to, to evolve the model. Uh, I'm very interested in like outcome-based subsidies. So if cities care about serving a certain neighborhood or a certain type of trip, like if they want to subsidize transit trips or riders from certain areas or certain income brackets, um, I think that's very interesting where you could subsidize some of the uh, policy goals, help them achieve some of the policy goals they want, but you could apply those subsidies across multiple different players. Um, so I, I think there's, gonna, there's a chance for innovating on, on the funding streams. Uh, I don't think it should just go back to, you know, you, you write a grant to buy your equipment and you get a contracted operator. Because um, frankly, like that model, that one model wasn't a raging success either. It was, yeah. it, it, it was not operating at scale those systems were still at best like borderline break even and, and looking for other inputs like sponsorship, which were always difficult to come by. So I, I, I think we need to have that in our tool book, tool, toolkit in cities that are willing to bring money to the table. It's going to help the operating economics of the space and make it viable. Um, but I don't think it should just return back to the way it was. Cool. Um, there's a question here that's sort of a, a mix of the one that Dylan and Olivia had put forward, but both of them are asking about, um, the e-scooter versus e-bike question, but largely along the, along the lines that like e-bikes are clearly like, you know, good quality e-bikes have maybe fallen by the wayside amid the focus of the scooters. Um, and that, you know, I, 
is there a role for e-bikes in the future or is it, are we, are we at the scooter game and scooters are where it's going to be? I think we really saw a different rider base between bikes and scooters. There, there was some overlap, but largely um, longer trips on a bike. Um, and so more of, of, you know, true point to point commuting versus first last mile. Um, so I, I think there is, they, they occupy a different space. Uh, I think from a regulatory perspective, there's a ton of advantages on bikes, uh, particularly in Europe, people, uh, you know, a lot of the regulators prefer bikes to, to scooters. Um, I think there's a place for both vehicles. I, I did start more uh, cynical with scooters in the, in the, in the early year, the early years of it. Um, but you know, I, I saw the, I saw what the vehicle can be. I saw, um, you know, the vehicle that we, we developed in house and, and rode that vehicle and it's, it's pretty, pretty great. Um, yeah. and I think there's a space, a space for both of them. I think the business model question comes up as well for me more than the vehicle type. Um, I think there's a lot of promise in, like, I think owned, owned electric vehicles owned e-bikes, maybe to a lesser extent on scooters are going to do incredibly well this year. Um, and I think there's an opportunity for long-term rental business models. Um, you know, people are familiar with like swap feats and, and, and the folks doing that for pedal bikes. I think there's an opportunity to do that for electric vehicles. Um, so I think, I think it's a business model, a business model innovation is probably even more needed than, than product, you know, introducing new modes and, and new products. Yeah, absolutely. And the, um, the owned versus, um, yeah, as you say, long, long-term leasing, I think also, gets you way out of the having to think about government regulation right because it's like well no we're doing all direct to consumer um and uh it allows a bit more flexibility in, in yeah. that space would be certainly something i've been thinking a lot about as well um there's a question here from uh, josh squire which is uh transportation is very local and operating vehicles on the streets are not easy was blitz scaling a mistake uh uh i think that the industry overall, 2018, 2019, uh, scaled very, very aggressively. Um, and would have, would have benefited from more product iteration and a few more cycles and some operations improvements. Um, the challenge was in 2018 and 2019 that the top line numbers, the, the, the consumer product market fit and the revenue growth was there. And it was very strong. It's like people, people love these things and you put them out there and you're getting the ridership. Um, and so the capital started chasing that um, because that the top line of the equation was working. Now, if you do that in software, you can sometimes bring down your costs by an order of magnitude with a, with a software update pushed to a server. If you do that with hardware, uh, in, in cities all over the world at the same time, if you're doing that with atoms, um, <clears throat> you know, physical matter, um, you can't necessarily just fix things with a quick software patch. Um, and so 2018, 2019, the top line looked great. The ridership looked great. Uh, but there needed to be more work on the ops cost and on the, and on the product that, to support those ops cost uh, improvements. Um, so I, I think it could, have been, it could have been a better outcome uh, if there was smaller, a, a slower scale up and more cycles of development. That's not what we have had happen across the industry. We had a, big scale up and now, now a bit of a contraction. Um, I think it, it started to build the muscle though of, of what this industry looks like at scale. I think it started to build up manufacturing interest and supply chain. Like there's certain component vendors and manufacturers that, that only get interested in certain scales. So it started to whet their appetite. On the other hand, when you see rapid, rapid scale back, that kind of, uh, that does not, that's not something that manufacturers like to see either. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, so, I, so in short, like we, what, what happened happened. Um, we can't, we can't kind of undo 2018 and 2019. Um, there'll be ways that it made the industry get places faster. Um, but, but clearly we need more cycles on, on the product and operations um, before it's financially sustainable. That would allow for another big scale up again. We have to get that right before we start applying capital again. We have to figure out the rest of that equation. Yeah, and there's a there's a couple of questions here that are related to, to something around that as well, which is so we've got Gene and um, Alex uh, both asking that kind of uh, question around what's your vision for infrastructure and in, in, in that space and the and the like 
the city's struggling with those pain points with only maybe a few thousand vehicles in the streets. But what does that actually start to look like when you've got hundreds of thousands of vehicles? Um, yeah. Because that's a, that's like that you can't just you know turn on a switch and all of a sudden it's like boom. Yeah, the, one of the big pain points as as twenty eighteen and twenty nineteen was scaling up was the vehicles were uh, in some cases piling up in the public right of way or obstructing areas, um, and so you, you need to solve the parking problem. Um, but the city has to be partners in that. They can't just be like you can't just complain that vehicles are are uh, uh, piling up and then not say and, and then just not reallocate space to to this new mode. Um, so, so car parking takes up, you know, 80% of your visual field when you're walking through most cities. Um, there's plenty of space for us to, to reprioritize. Um, so, so I think the, the, the parking is one piece and then charging infrastructure is the other piece that will need to be figured out. Um, if you can have a charging dock or a battery swap, both are valid strategies. Um, you can cut out a significant amount of labor costs. You'll still have to worry, worry about mechanical fa failures, but if you if you just don't, you take the human component out of out of the charging, uh, the labor cost out of the charging, that's another one of the major levers you have to make the economics work in the industry. And and so I think those infrastructure of parking with some sort of charging solution next to it um, is needed to unlock the next level of growth. Can I jump in awesome. here really fast? Yeah, sure. If I can look at one trend in the questions we're getting, they all basically begin with a compliment for you. And what's <laughs> interesting about that, Jump was craftsmanlike in everything it did, right? The design was right. The product was carefully considered. The branding and user experience were very of a piece of a feather. Um, you guys were more of a gradual expansion. You took your time. Uh, obviously, we talked about blitz scaling, but I think that was you know something that happened later on. Um, I guess my question is, if I can synthesize all of this kind of this, these questions we're seeing, is are you happy with the state of the industry today? Do you feel the values of Jump are carried on by anyone else in the field? Yeah, I um, again, I hope that this great talent that that just got let go um, infuses uh, all these other companies that are out there and trying to to make this work. Um, uh, yeah, I, I feel like. Uh, I, I feel like there's a lot of people using a lot of different tactics with different levels of capital right now. Um, so I think it's, it's still a deep space. Um, and I feel like out of that, somebody is going to figure it out. I wanted that desperately to be us, um, that, that and for 10, 20 years from now, people will be riding jump vehicles. Um, it, it didn't work out that way, um, uh, which, is, which is super unfortunate. Um, but I, I hope that we catalyzed an important industry at an important time, um, set sort of a, a product execution bar that I hope somebody beats. Like I, I, I'll be excited um, when there's many, many vehicles that, that kind of hit that caliber. Um, <clears throat> so I, I think, I just think we're early. Like I, I think I started insanely early, but, but we're, we're still, <laughs> We're still very early in this in this trend, and so will, will some more companies go bankrupt in the next year or two? Definitely, but somebody's going to survive. Somebody's going to change the business model in a way that that works. They're going to find other other inputs into the equation. They're going to rein in the operations cost. They're going to do something that unlocks more consumer demand. They're going to find a regulatory hack that that gets cities on board. The, the, all the ingredients are there. We're, we're making the soup. The, the, the ingredients are all chopped. Um, Somebody's going to put it together in the right combination, um, and and it'll all it'll all come together. Nice. Uh, Naka, Michael Naka just put a question in the chat that actually kind of uh, uh, says what I was saying, but more bluntly. He just asks, "Who's the most who's the most talented hardware team in the industry beyond Jump?" <laughs> um, well, wh whoever hires the most Jump people, I think. You know, uh, uh, I, I I I have a lot of respect for Van Moof. Um, I, I have two of their two of their bikes. Um, and and ride it obviously they're coming at it from a consumer perspective but i think honestly consumer consumer has the the most potential over the next year to there's a clear path to having operating economics work um so i think i think their execution their brand is is very good um and yeah on the shared side i i i feel like i feel like i 
yeah, I, I, I feel like whoever, whoever can absorb the talent that's coming out of here uh, can, can get, a, get a leap forward on everybody else. Uh, some, somebody uh, asked me in Slack, it's a great question, and you just kind of touched on it with your answer about the bikes you own. Are, are you able to enjoy biking still? Yeah, I, I, may, I may even enjoy it more because, you know, for, for the 10 years I was running the company, uh, I would, every time I'd see a bike, I was like inspecting it. Um, whether it's a private bike or a shared bike or whatever. Um, I still do that reflexively sometimes, but I do it less. Um, and, and yeah, I still, I still enjoy, like I have a, I have a three-year-old and I have a little seat that goes on the back of the bike. Um, and my, my wife and I both have BMOP bikes and just going out for, for a ride is still incredibly enjoyable. And I think that's, I think that's what we all, that's the tailwind that we all have is that um, a lot of people haven't experienced any bike yet. Still, despite everything we've done over the last few years, uh, people haven't experienced it yet and realize that for getting around a city, it's actually the fastest, most comfortable, most enjoyable. It's a, it's a that, that was something that was always core to, to the jump experience. It wasn't just about uh, A to B. It was also about fun and, and experience. Um, and so, yeah, I can absolutely still enjoy it myself. Um, and, and maybe more so because now I'm not as uh, critically emotionally involved. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, <clears throat> thank you. Uh, I'm aware we're kind of running up against time. Um, so, uh, look, I just want to say from my, from my side, just thank you so much for, for taking the time to come and share with us. Um, this has been super, super cool and very That's interesting, fun. I think. Yeah, yeah, this, yeah. Is a, this is great. And thanks for making time, Ryan. Um, to everyone else who's listening, uh, you can down, if you missed part of the call or you want to go back and see any parts, you can download a recording of it shortly afterward. I will upload it to uh, micromobility.io slash triple hyphen M. Uh, you just sign into your account there and you can download it uh, for yourself. Um, we will be back next week on Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time with Joe Krause of Lime, uh, who will be talking about many of these similar issues uh, and also probably about the jump acquisition. Uh, and we will be recording that conversation as well. Uh, in the meantime, guys, thanks for being here. Thanks for taking the time out of your day. Thank you to Ryan. Thank you to Oliver. And I'll talk to you all more soon. Uh, actually, one last thing. If anyone has any questions that we didn't quite get to, maybe Ryan will be able to answer them on Twitter sometime. Ryan, do you want to share your Twitter handle? Yeah, it's uh, R-Y-R-Z-N-Y. Cool. All right. Well, give him a follow. Um, and we'll look forward to talking to you more soon. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thanks. Bye.